0: Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jim McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new story from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host, Kevin McMahon, after the reading, when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. This podcast and all related materials are production of Onyx Publications all stories are copyright 2021 all rights reserved hey podcast listeners before we begin we're excited to let you know that onyx publications and the story discovery podcast has been featured in the livewriters.com newsletter LiveWriters is the hub for finding podcasts about books about writing and about publishing check out our interview and while you're there don't forget to sign up now on to the story. Today's story is Old James and the Whitler," written by Michael Sobey and narrated by J.W. McAteer. Settle in and enjoy. Old James and the Whitler. It was high on his 78th year that Old James decided he was too ornery to live alone. No one to gripe at, he'd say to himself. No one to give what-for to, when he felt like giving a little what-for, and no one to cuss at neither, he added under his breath. And before long, he started to think that it'd be real nice to have someone cook up the pot of beans, but then a cook wouldn't know to cook just the way he liked em. Be real nice to have someone fetch me my pipe come sundown, but then he soon realized that a woman would probably frown on his smoking, what with all them medical facts that's come to light recently. And be real nice to have someone to plump up the pillows, if you get my drift, he thought with a twinkle, but then realized his plumping days were long gone. And besides, he never knew a woman that didn't have feet felt like the handle of a water pump on a frostbitten morning, he remembered with a cold shiver. He leaned back in his comfortable old lazy boy, avoiding, with years of experience, the sticky patches of worn duct tape placed to keep all the stuffing just where he liked it and thought how nice it would be to tell someone just what those idiots in Washington could do with their dang fool tax-cut this and incentive-based that. But then he realized the world was just chock-full of Republicans, and finding someone to talk sense to was not going to be an easy job. And besides, he was retired now, and didn't need another job. Still, let it not be said that old James, even he referred to himself as old James, was a slacker that shied away from his duties. But a woman seemed more trouble than she was worth. What with all their rules and frilly things and their incessant yapping, filling his comfortable days of blissful silence. No, he certainly didn't need any more of those, you'll never guess what Mabel told me down at the store today, and their likes. But a man that keeps his own company keeps the company of a fool. So the very next morning, old James went down to the pound and had himself a little look-see. Always wanted me a dog. "'he told the soft-spoken woman at the desk. "'And there ain't no ma to complain about the mess, "'and no pa to complain about the expense,' he added fiercely. "'Well, I think we'll find you just the right animal companion,' "'the woman answered. "'I don't want me no animal companion,' he was about to say. "'I want me a dog.' "'But he could see the old lady was a kindly sort, "'and so he kept the thought. "'Now old James thought himself a tough old bird. "'He'd seen his share of hardship and misery.' But all those dogs in their cages, yapping and crying and jumping for his attention, nearly broke his heart. There was that little short-haired white fella, jumping up and falling all over himself with enthusiasm. A Jack Russell Terrier, the lady explained. Then there was the big police dog, that's what they called him years back, that barked all wild and crazy when he walked by. But old James knew enough about people to know that that was nothing more than his way of saying howdy. Then there was the fine-looking coon dog that howled with delight and the bird dog that raced in circles and the foxhound that couldn't decide whether to bark, jump, scratch, or cry and settled on doing all four at once. And then there was the pile of puppies, short-haired ones with floppy ears and long-haired ones with pointy ears and long-legged fellows with short tails and small little puffs of fur with coal black button noses, all climbing and biting and yipping just being a pack of pups one might say see any you like the woman asked well began old james you just can't help but laugh at these pups but i ain't sure i'll be around long enough to watch over them properly he said matter-of-factly we do have a few older dogs that need good homes she began here's an older rottweiler he'd be a good guard dog don't have much that needs garden old james answered we have a greyhound always take the train. I mean, a dog, retired from dog racing. Old James looked at her crossly. I ain't senile, you know, just old. Yes, of course, a joke, the woman said self-consciously. We also have an old sheep dog. Don't have any sheep. An English bulldog. Don't like the English. Have you thought perhaps a cat? We have some lovely Persians in the next room. But old James wasn't listening. He was staring at what appeared to be an old bearskin stuffed in the corner at the end of the hall. Suddenly, the mottled brown pile of fur raised its head. One ear stood alert. The other flopped over lazily. What have we got here? And there was a softness to his voice that hadn't been heard in a long, long time. That's Baxter, the woman replied. But old James wasn't really talking to her. He was talking to the dog. The dog sat up though you could see it took some effort, and eyed old James curiously. "'Baxter's been here a while,' the woman continued. "'He's sort of our unofficial mascot.' There was something in those eyes, something intelligent but complacent, something fierce yet docile, something that had seen enough of the world, enough of the cruelty and meanness that exists, but that had also seen the good men's hearts. But most of all, there was something that just said, "'Dang!' Here was a dog that had seen it all, and done it all, and was now just plain fed up with it all. You comin?", Old James asked of the dog. Excuse me? I wasn't speaking to you, ma'am, Old James replied politely. I was speaking to him, he said with a tilt of his head. Baxter, in reply, tilted his head to just the same angle. Baxter is, uh, um, not ready to be adopted, she began. I ain't gonna make him my heir, Old James answered. I mean, he's not really socialized. I ain't running a charm school, he answered. No one has ever shown an interest in Baxter, she said confused. He won't make a good companion. Old James turned to her. He doesn't obey very well, she continued. I ain't running a military school neither. He's uh, a bit willful. Good. He's been known to snap. Old James couldn't suppress a chuckle at that. He doesn't like people, the woman said finally. Old James looked around slowly. This ain't no place for the likes of you, he said to Baxter. Look, he's an ornery old dog, the woman snapped. Surely another dog would. You comin', fella, Old James said softly. Baxter rose to his feet, walked over to Old James, and placing his nose deep into the man's crotch, gave Old James a good sniff. Let's go, Old James turned and started to walk down the hall. He won't follow you, the woman said petulantly. And in that, she was correct. Baxter did not follow. He walked alongside, as it should be. The woman could have been knocked over by a feather, flummoxed to be sure, but not too flummoxed to call out. There are forms to fill out. Papers you need. Old James didn't even look back. I don't need no papers. And side by side, Old James and Baxter walked down the hall and out the door. Now, Old James didn't know much about grooming, hygiene, or nutrition. But he knew enough to know the old fella needed a good brushing and he knew that a good soak would probably not be a bad idea either and it seemed silly if not downright impossible to get Baxter all wet and lathered while he tried to stay dry well any fool could see there wasn't much sense in that so old James filled the tub shed his overalls and took the first bath he'd had since the new year and it didn't make much sense either to be brushing the old fella and leave his own hair all on a tangle. So after he finished with Baxter, he gave himself a good brushing. And after all that washing and drying and brushing and combing, a man will develop a powerful hunger. So they went out and bought a nice two-pound side of beef. But as old James knew that man doesn't live by beef alone, he also bought a bag of big kibble. Heavy it was, too. And after checking the ingredients, he saw why. Damn kibble is fortified full of vitamins and minerals, like iron. No wonder it weighed a ton. And old James knew enough to know it didn't make no sense to give the old fella a healthy meal while he fed himself all that crap out of the box. So he bought himself some vegetables and fruits and wholesome nutrients down at that fancy new health food store. Now one could certainly say things got a bit better out there at the homestead, though there was no one to really notice. Old James and the old fella as Baxter was being called, had their routine, full of chores and pleasures. But working together, side by side, the line between chore and pleasure blurred. Take, for instance, mealtime. Food preparation didn't used to be much. Grab a box, rip open a bag, heat that can of beans in the pot. But now that there was someone to appreciate culinary cuisine, old James took a little extra care in preparing their victuals. How could he not? The old fella, finally attuned to every detail, looked on with such glee. So it was not uncommon for old James to supply a running commentary on the progress of each meal. In fact, on occasion, old James often waxed poetic on the finer points of stewing greens, frying tomatoes, or smoking ham hocks, sounding no different indeed from all them fancy-pants cooking shows. Or take, for instance, their daily walks, Doc Simpson had, for the longest time, been trying to get old James out of that rocker. But old James was rather set in his ways, and he didn't see no use for that aerobic exercise crap. But now, every morning, they hiked along the old logging path, and every afternoon they strolled the back lawn, and every evening they made the rounds down to the pond. And it wasn't for some damn fool exercise. Nope, there were things that needed doing. The varmints had to be kept from munching the day lilies, And wasn't that what the alfalfa grass was for, anyhow? Help yourself to seconds, but leave me my flowers, thank you kindly. And the newborn turtles, who didn't know any better, had to be kept off the road. And someone had to sound the alarm when the baby starlings fell out of the nest. It was just astonishing, all the things that needed doing that old James had never taken notice of before. And as it happened, the old fella proved himself a worthy partner at taking care of business. So you see, the walks weren't just mindless exercise. They were duty tours, patrols. And one of the things they patrolled for were good whittling sticks. Nobody likes a good whittling stick more than an old man and an old dog. Sometimes it was the old fella that would come running out of the bushes, dragging a big straight stick of hickory in his mouth. Sometimes it was old James that would find just the right shape of basswood or ash. And then, with their newfound treasure in hand, they'd settle onto the front porch. Old James would sink into the rocker and pull out his sixty-some-odd-year-old bowie knife given to him when he was just a little pup. And the old fella would flop down beside him and pull out his own carving tools, the yellowing canines that he, too, had since he was almost a pup. And then they'd each hunker down and get to work. But whittling was not just work. It was sheer pleasure for both man and dog. They'd sit there for hours whittling away, chipping off pieces of wood, throwing them aside, spitting them out, stopping from time to time to survey their handiwork. Neither said much, maybe a comment here or a growl there, but mostly it was whittling, just plain whittling. Early on, though, old James did make one observation. Looking down at old fella, he said simply, the thing about whittling is you need the right stick. Old fella couldn't agree more. Realizing he was talking to a kindred soul, old James shared another of his secrets. The other thing about Whitlin is you keep going at it till everything that doesn't belong is gone. Looking down, he could see that the dog understood fully. Encouraged, he continued, And when everything that don't belong is gone, you is done. And with that, nothing more was ever said. But it was clear that nothing more needed saying. Old James wasn't a bad whittler, not by a long shot, and Old James, able to appreciate a fellow craftsman, realized that, in his own right, Old Fella was every bit his equal, and together they whittled away many a peaceful and enjoyable hour. But Old James never really knew what an incredible master whittler Old Fella was, and that, perhaps as much as anything, was Old Fella's gift to him. There weren't many visitors round the homestead, and those few strays that wandered by were sometimes met with open hostility. But things had been so pleasant for some time now that when old James saw Billy McNamara come walking up the drive, he didn't bother going for the shotgun and merely moved the pipe to the corner of his mouth. For his part, old fella dropped the stick from his mouth and let it be known, just in case there was any doubt, that his carving tools were not for wood only. What brings you this way, Billy? Old James asked. Billy... A gaunt man, well into his fifties, stopped at the first step and smiled. No one's called me Billy for some time now. You was Billy down at the mill, and you was Billy down in the union hall. I'm William, in the revenue office, Billy finished, still smiling. Old James laughed dryly. Seems like they got new names for everything. Used to call it the tax collector. We still do that, but we do so much more. For instance, old James cut him off sharply. Well... Whatever you want to be called, what are you doing out here? You know, the county's been building some. A new school, a courthouse, better roads. Old James whistled. If an you come for more money, you done wasted more in gas. Billy shifted from one leg to the other. See, it's because of the federal monies that's been coming in, he began awkwardly. And with all the building, the assessor's office has reassessed all the property in the county. No one's reassessed anything here. It was all done on paper. Land values have gone up, so all of our property is worth more, he said, trying to sound cheerful. But old James wasn't having any of that. Look, it's all explained here. From inside his jacket pocket, Billy pulled out a fold of papers and handed it up to old James. Old James stared down at them, but didn't take them. I'll just set them here, Billy said as he laid them down on the top step of the porch. I don't need no papers, old James answered. Then he reconsidered. I suppose you know exactly what they say. Billy nodded. How much more are you going to take from an old man? Billy told him. Old James stared in disbelief. I never had that kind of money. Not now. Not then. Not ever. That's what your land is worth now, James. It ain't right. Billy shrugged. I know my rights, old James insisted. I should be grandfathered in. No new taxes. Not today. Not tomorrow. You understand, Billy? Billy shrugged, clearly ill at ease with what he had to say. You can sell. The land would bring a tidy sum. And where would I go? He dropped a hand down to old fellow's neck and corrected himself. Where would we go? Like the smell of bacon grease, the stench of Billy's visit hung around long after he was gone. Warnery old James, a curmudgeon long past caring about nothing, had slowly discovered a life he enjoyed. And now, that life was threatened. Old James could put it in so many words, but, nonetheless, his foot fell heavy on the old logging path. I'm too old for this, he said, seemingly to nobody, as he bent down to clear a birch branch from the path. We're too old for this. Maybe a small apartment in town, or one of those trailers. But his words lacked conviction. He waited for news from the revenue office. Maybe they didn't need his money after all. Maybe there was some mistake. A misplaced decimal. He had heard of such things. But with Billy's next visit, he knew there would be no such luck. This time, Billy didn't come alone. He brought the marshal. Old James, I want you to meet Marshal Acuff. Old James looked at the young man in the gray uniform and wide brimmed hat. So it's Marshal now, is it? And he let out a laugh. Seems like it wasn't so long ago. You was still peeing your pants. Old James. Just want you to know that I'll be bringing a few bankers and engineers out here next week to survey and appraise the place. Old James turned away dismissively. Old fella, Troy here used to be the biggest bedwetter in all of Marion County. Why, I remember his mama would have herself a I just want to let you know what was going on. The marshal interrupted as he headed back to the car. Billy frowned and followed. Old fella watched them go, his hackles standing up along the ridge of his back. Now old fella, you gotta remember... That Troy and Billy ain't bad folk. They're just doing what they think needs doing, just like we do what needs doing. Old James eased himself out of the rocker. Let's patrol. My nerves need to whittle some. But as they walked, old James wasn't focused much on the sticks along the way, nor was he necessarily thinking about the bunnies that darted into the brambles, or the birds that chirped as he passed, or the storm clouds that threatened on the horizon. Nor was he ignorant of them either. He was a part of this, part of this land, part of this county, its history, and even its future. And then he laughed. The ramblings of an old man, he said aloud. Then he watched old fella mark territory, a symbolic gesture if ever there was one, and one that made its point. Oh, he was certainly a part of all this, but an insignificant part. All would continue without him. That, he fancied himself essential, was nothing more than human conceit. But he also knew this, Piss on them all if they thought they would turn his land to a neat little subdivision. It wasn't that the hurdles and the frogs and birds needed him. Whether they did or not was unimportant. For they all, the birds, the bunnies, the butterflies, all the creatures, big and small, would in the end all die, just like he would. But piss on them all if they thought it would be on his watch. Old James was right, at least about the fact that the marshal and the tax collector weren't really bad people. They weren't angels either, just folk. And as with most folk, Sometimes their job got in the way of their sleep, and so it happened. Old James isn't really a bad sort, the marshal remarked. And he is one of the oldest living citizens in the county, the tax collector added. So the next day, Troy and Billy rode back out to see Old James. Billy heard about a family that had auctioned off their belongings to keep their land. Maybe Old James could do likewise. And Troy figured there might be some good antiques lying around. I mean, no offense, Old James, but you've been here quite a spell. Well, old James just laughed when they told him their idea. He told them they were free to have a look around, but that all they were likely to find in the tool shed were a bunch of his old whittlings. Wood carvings, huh? Billy said. You might call them that, old James answered. We just call them whittlings, me and the old fella do. Maybe we could get Clarice Bottoms to come out and take a look. Clarice is now the curator of the State Museum. Suit yourself, old James answered as they drove off. He reached down and picked up a sturdy piece of birch. Imagine that, thinking these might be worth something. Old fella, too, reached for a stick, which was not unusual, but he seemed driven by a deep purpose and newfound intensity. That night, while old James slept, old fella gnawed away. And the next night as well. While old James snored, old fella chewed. All week, old fella worked incessantly, chips piling high on the porch. By the third day, old James took note. Not sleeping much, are you, old fella? And with a kindly scratch of the ears, he tried to soothe his friend. It's going to be all right. You'll see. And as if to agree, old fella licked the man's dried and withered hands. The next week, Billy brought Clarice as promised, and after spending only a few minutes in the tool shed, she ran out, all excited. Old James, these pieces are exquisite, she gushed. Old James blushed, ever so slightly. I can turn a nice stick he said modestly. These sticks are worth at least a few hundred dollars a piece, and the larger ones double that. We could have a show. In fact, we could fill a whole gallery, she turned to Billy. If you were to donate these to the museum, or rather if the state could acquire these pieces, there would certainly be enough to pay off any debt. Old James looked hopeful. And as long as I have these two hands, there are plenty more a-coming. The details were soon arranged, and a truck was backed up to the shed and the whittlings were carried off. In time, old James became quite famous, for Whitler, that is. His pieces brought good money and some enjoyment, and of that he was happy. But fame and fortune aside, life continued much as it was. The routine was unaltered. There were the chores and the pleasures, all shared with old fella, which, as we said, kind of blurred the lines between the two. But every now and then, old James would get a note from Clarice. The last one puzzled him. She said that the president himself took an interest in his carving of the squirrel treed by a dog. It was so lifelike that she wondered if, in fact, his dog had been the model for the carving. Old James was pleased that the president was taking an interest, but for the life of him, he couldn't ever remember whittling a dog treeing a squirrel. But there had been so many whittlings, so many years. Hey, old fella, you ever remember whittling a squirrel? He said with a laugh. Old fella wagged his tail and went back to his stick. The tip of which, if viewed just so, had a bulbous curve, faintly resembling a bushy tail. Soon after, as things go, old James whittled his last stick. But he left the world happy and fulfilled, leaving his mark on creatures big and small, in ways he never could have guessed. Two days after he was laid to rest, someone remembered old Fella. The marshal and Billy went up to the homestead to look for him. They found him with no trouble, lying next to the grave of old James. They needn't worry about who would take care of him, for he too, as old dogs do, had also passed on. Next to the dog were two carvings. One was a large vertical of an old hand carving a branch, the other an oblong of a scruffy old dog chewing on a stick. They were both wrought with loving detail. Damn, the old geezer thought of everything, Billy said with affection, carving his own tombstone. And one for the dog, too the marshal added with awe and reverence. And somewhere, man and dog had a good laugh about that, because don't you know, government men never get anything right. You've been listening to Old James and the Whittler by Michael Sobe. I'm Jim McAteer, along with co-host Kevin McMahon. And we've got Michael on the show here to give us his perspective on writing and the craft of storytelling. So welcome to the show, Michael.
1: Thanks. Glad to be here. Good to see you. Great
0: to have you on. Hey, so old James is a really fun story. It's one of the things that drew us to it. Did you have any particular motivation for writing it? Um, and what I'm saying is like, were you looking to tackle a specific character type or did you just think dogs are smarter than people?
1: Well, I have an affinity for dogs, and it's like that bumper sticker where it says, the more I know people, the more I like my dog. I, if I was prone to bumper stickers, I would put that on my car. But no, I don't really think I had any particular motivation. In fact, the way the story came to me is kind of interesting, because people ask me this. And I was playing around with a tape recorder and, and speaking into a tape recorder, and I fell asleep one night, and I woke up the next morning, and there was a story on the tape recorder. It's amazing. just like Keith Richards and the song Satisfaction. I love telling that story. And yes, it may not have happened exactly that way. But (laughs) to be honest, I don't remember the exact motivation because it was a while back. And usually things always work in the same pattern. I get a germ of an idea. And I suspect it came from me when I was actually adopting my dog from a pet shelter. And we were going around to ASPCAs and Humane Societies. And I saw these dogs... And that probably put the germ of the story in my head.
0: Oh, yeah, that's great. Well, you've written a few novels also, um, as well as short stories. Do you prefer one form over the other? And what do you think is particularly challenging with each of those forms?
1: You know, everyone will say that that each one is different, and it's true. And actually, I do have a favorite form, and that's screenplays mm-hmm i started my career working in film and i never thought i'd be a writer everyone dreams about being a director and everyone has their own idea of how to be a director and at a certain point in time people thought well i'll write a screenplay and then i'll sell it and then i'll get to direct it so i started to write screenplays and i was working in film and to work in film you have to be hired by somebody and it dawned on me to write a screenplay i just need a pen and a pencil mm-hmm started writing. Of course, I've never written by pen and pencil ever. (laughs) But the idea is like, you don't have to be hard, you can start writing. And having no background, but seeing films, you think, how do I write this stuff? It's like, well, you just write what you picture. And (laughs) you don't get bogged down in, in the style of writing, because you just want to get your thoughts down, you just want to get what you see there. And I like that form the most because it also incorporates visuals and music and everything I write kind of goes back to the way I write screenplays is I I envision a scene and then I try and write it and I, I write what I think is important you know and I tend not to see you know where a lot of people really see descriptors and they see how people are dressed I tend not to see how people are dressed so I tend to not focus on that and So I just write what I see, and that's kind of the style, that's the process. Short stories are their own thing because, and this may or may not be invoked to say, because everyone loves New Yorker stories, everyone reads it for the fiction. I try reading it. For years, I've read so many stories that I go, what's the point of this? It's like it's well-written, but there's no point and it's become and I actually recently read a little thing about Kurt Vonnegut saying the exact same thing that his advice to writers is don't read any New Yorker stories. Oh my goodness.
0: <laughs> and I was like
1: I felt, you know, validated at, at at finally. But the point is if you have a short story, you really have to have a point and people kind of forget that a novel doesn't necessarily have a point because there's so much in it. You can get so much out of it You know, it could be a character study. It could be a, 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 a Polemic on something. I mean, there are lots of things you can get out of a novel the short story being short is really there for just one purpose and mm-hmm. people sometimes forget that. So, if you know what you're doing, short stories can be really good and well crafted and you don't have to get bogged down in long character arcs and changes to characters because you're just making a point. So, that's the good part and the bad part, you know, and with novels, you have this it's the same, you know, two-edged sword that you have 90,000 words, 200 pages, and people can get lost and you lose the thread and you start out writing something and this happens to me all the time. I know the premise of my novel. I know exactly what I'm going to do and 70 pages later, I'm not sure I've done it. It's changing and, you know, and this probably will go to a question I think you were going to discuss, which is, you know, do I write by the seat of my pants, do I outline? And I'm always a a pantser. I didn't even know what the term was, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I start and I just logically connect the dots. And what happens, like I said, I get a germ of an idea and I think that'd be interesting. What if, and then I think about it and I usually get an opening scene or that, that idea that intrigues me. And as I start thinking about it, I don't start writing, I just think about it. And then I usually get an ending. And that mm-hmm. ending may not be the ultimate ending, but that's the ending of, like, my idea, and that's where I think it's going. And then the hard part is getting a middle and connecting the dots. And what I usually do is I say, okay, if this has to happen, or, you know, like with old James, here's an old guy, he's a curmudgeon, and I know that he's going to adopt a dog, and that dog is got to change him fundamentally. So I have to, like, go through the steps, and I have to make the steps interesting, and I have to make sure that everything's going to stay on track, but also you know add something as we go along so i think it's to me it's just one big problem solving situation Mm -hmm. i think as a you know as a like not necessarily tip to writers but the thing that makes better writing is along the way you have to remember that there's always obstacles and setbacks and things that have to be overcome if everything happens too easily you know if if he adopted a dog and it was wonderful and they got along great it'd be a wonderful life but it wouldn't be a very good story right remember that you have to have you have to put in obstacles that you have to overcome and that's where character and plot come in yeah sure so that's my little four minutes on it
2: (laughs) hey michael i know just from like hanging out with you you've mentioned a couple times that you worked on films and like maybe documentaries i remember and i've just never gotten that whole story
1: oh yeah it's it's my whole story is, you know, boring to me, but <laughs> I went to school, I wanted to work in film. You come out, you get any job you can, being a gopher, gaffer, painting sets, doing everything. And then I started working as an assistant editor and editing a lot of documentaries and TV specials. And they did that for, a, for a, a long time. I went out to LA. I, this was in New York City. And I decided i was going to go out to la go to hollywood and i went mm-hmm. and i realized that going out to hollywood is you're starting all over again from scratch and that was yeah. very disconcerting to me
0: especially if you don't know anybody
1: yeah exactly i mean i didn't know anybody i i was a union editor which is a big deal in new york in california it's no big deal it's a different union and one thing led to another and I wound up going back to New York and I had this this notion I, I don't even know why I'm bothering this but if I was in New York I could get work and I wasn't getting work in, in LA I was leading this dream life which is a kind of a little cute anecdote. I was working as a waiter at night and I'd hang out at the beach and I'd play tennis during the day and you'd see all these people like hanging out in Venice at cafes and you think, wow, these guys are all independently wealthy. And then you realize, no, they're all struggling artists and their waiters work <laughs> at night and we all hang out during the day. And so it's like, it's this really good life, but you kind of get nowhere because it's hard to break out of this little mold. People do it, but it's kind of hard. And I always said, if I go back to New York, I get work. Went back to New York, got work. It was a horrible film. I remember it to this day. It was a documentary about what the Catholic Church is doing to help Cuban refugees. So if you know anything about politics, you'll know like exactly when that was. And it was so boring that I just, that's it for me. I'm going to devote myself to writing. And I started to write and didn't sell anything, but then had a lot of friends in publishing. And I realized there were a lot of books that get people get hired to write like romances. and I thought I could write a romance. And I was mm-hmm. dead wrong. Because to write a romance, you have to be able to read one or two of them. And I couldn't read them, I couldn't get through them. <laughs> and I realized I can't do this. But the thing was in my head that you know, you could write and get paid for it. And I realized they were Westerns that people could write and I figured, okay, I could write a Western I've watched John Wayne movies. So I actually started writing Westerns that were been published. And then I went to the Great American Novel, which was another setback because no one gets their first Great American Novel published. And, but the writing bug was in me, and it stayed with me, even through years and years of living in my living room and doing nothing except odd jobs like being a waiter and a painter to like pay the rent. And then might as well continue. Then finally I decided I can't live in my living room anymore. I'm going to go to law school. Law school involves a certain amount of writing, so that made me happy. But eventually, I still missed writing, moved out of New York, stopped being a lawyer, went back to writing full time. And that's where we're on now. So I, I basically still write. I don't have all the same hopes for, you know, wild blockbuster success. But that's another story. Writing, <laughs> if you like writing, it's its own reward.
0: It is. That's true. That's a good point
1: this is a good story i like telling about things about bob seger i once heard bob seger talking on the radio giving an interview in the days before podcasts so they're just interviews and the interviewer said it must be a real kick to have you know to write a song and hear it on the radio and he thought of him and he goes no not really because the enjoyment comes from writing the song and playing it. By the time it has success, it's like it doesn't matter anymore. And that really mm-hmm. struck me as like very genuine and sincere and very smart. And I had friends mm-hmm. all along who would say things to me like, you know, when I sell my screenplay and I move to L.A., then I'm going to be happy. When I get my book published, then I'm going to be happy. But they didn't really enjoy the process of just writing. It was always tied into the, you know, the end result and the rewards you get. And I realized to be happy at doing something, you have to like what you're doing and when I stopped writing for a long time I wasn't happy I really missed writing and in fact at times in at the job when the job was really slow I started writing again and I was gonna quit my job because I didn't like and I realized but wait a minute I have time to like write my own pieces on the job (laughs) they're paying me for this why not just keep doing it so I did it and I still write and I'm not you know widely published but I still write
0: right right that's great well, writing is a bit of a process and uh, I get a lot of enjoyment out of it also. So yeah, the um, editing is not so much fun. How do you feel about editing? That's the, that's where it gets muddy. We
1: never. Th- this is really like ripping off the scabs. for <laughs> For decades, editing was like something that was just spell checking. You know, I wrote the piece, I spell checked it. I had maybe one or two decisions to make like, you know, should he be driving a Chevy Impala or a Buick, you know, and I, that was my editing and I did very little in terms of editing and other writing friends of mine would go ballistic because it's like the job's not done. You have to edit this piece. And unfortunately I still lean in that direction. I write a very careful first draft that unless there is a glaring problem, with very little change is my final draft. And it's just kind of the way I work. I mean, I think working on a word processor helps me a lot because I can ramble a lot and I can put a lot of thoughts down and then erase, change, move. And that's part of an editing process. But for me, that's part of my first draft process. So by the time I get a first draft, I've gone through a lot of thinking and changing and adjusting and moving that other people might actually just breeze through quickly and then in the second draft do that but i kind of do it as i go along because i don't want to wind up in a cul-de-sac or a dead end or in a corner that i don't want to be in so i make sure that every step i take is a step i want to take and i'll i'll throw this bit in i've noticed anytime i get like stuck or have writer's block you know It's never because of what I think it is like if I'm writing a scene and I'm on, you know, page like 84 and I'm stuck, I realize the problem isn't on page 84 and it's not on the scene I'm working with. It's the scene once or two before that led me into this dead end. And like I've really Mm -hmm. learned Mm -hmm. to trust that that sense. So so I do a lot of editing as I write. But, you know things have to be edited and it depends upon how how you write in your style how much editing has to be has to be gone into it unfortunately i'm kind of like a a spoiled brat if something really doesn't work and i have to reorganize and restructure and change everything and redo characters i just figure it's easy to start again with a new idea that's actually never happened but that's always my thread in the back of my mind if this thing is so messed up just bury it and start again with something else so
2: that makes sense to me because you always have you've got a bunch of stories and you've always got story ideas so that makes sense to me that you don't like getting bogged down in revision
1: yeah i mean i i have a a long time college friend writer works in hollywood and we had incredible falling out of uh like two years ago because he was talking about i think i'm going to go back and rewrite my star wars epic you know science fiction screenplay from, and I'm dating myself, 1976. And I wrote back and I said, Chris, you're a fantastic writer. Why drudge up something that's decades old? Just move forward. And his reaction was like, you're telling me to kill my baby. It's like, no, I'm not telling you to kill your baby. I'm telling you, you have great ideas. Your ideas always come. Don't try and rework a 30-year-old, a 50-year-old idea now, you know? But he really was insulted. You know, so it's like if you trust the process that there are going to be more ideas coming, that kind of is liberating. If you think that you have one or two great ideas, then you got to really keep reworking them. Hmm. You know, the, the other thing, too, I found in, like, talking with my other writing friends is I didn't come from a background where I wanted to be a writer. I was going to work in film, and I just took the back door into writing but i've had friends who've always wanted to be writers are literary majors and these guys are really burdened because they compare themselves to you know tolstoy dostoevsky you know dickens they compare themselves to great writers and every sentence has to live up to their expectations and they get nowhere you know so i think if you have high expectations it really can hamper your ability to write you know, whereas if you just say, "Listen, I'm just going to put down what I feel. I'm going to write. I can always edit it. I can always change it." It allows you to kind of be a little bit more productive. So,
0: definitely, that makes sense.
2: I just finished reading this book called um, Art Forum by this guy named Cesar Ayira. Cesar Ayira. I guess he's Argentinian, and he he's kind of like you. He'll write like two to five novella length book the year and really doesn't spend like a lot of time revising he just tries to find a way to go forward like improvise his way out of the story if he gets stuck
1: yeah i mean again like everyone does things differently and some people like i've i've dabbled in a lot of other things cooking art sculpture and what amazes me is sometimes my first attempt comes out better right from the get-go than anything else I do subsequently. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's it's really, it's, it's truly beginner's luck and unimportant. But I realized that that happens a lot. I mean, when I was living in New Orleans, I fried okra. You know, okra is everywhere, you can't avoid it. And apparently getting <laughs> okra to fry up perfectly, not greasy, not soft, is really hard. It's like people talk about fried chicken, frying everything there. And my first attempt came out perfectly and it just happened. I never got it that good again but i think when you don't stress on the details you know your your mind your body your muscles react much differently you know you have to kind of learn to trust that stuff and it's hard to do that until you have a lot of experience that's that's why i think with anything practice really helps you know it's like people say, write your first novel, then throw it away, you know, write a lot. And then finally, after a few years, you'll get good at writing. And I've never like necessarily agreed with it, but I see the sense in that, that until you do something for a while, your instincts don't come out, you're worried about form, you're worried about details, and it just inhibits you.
0: Hmm, That's that's a good point. Well, everyone in this writing community, everyone takes a different approach to it, that's for sure. I'm surprised that as a pantser, you can edit as you go as much as you do, because I'm similar in that way. And, um, only once or twice have I had to go back to like, a, a, an origin chapter, like in the first third of the book and change some things around because of the way the trajectory like took me, you know what I mean? Yeah. But like, I will do that. Will you do that? You know what? That's a loaded question. No, I don't know. I, <laughs> no,
1: because I will do it, but honestly, I've never done it. Because, and this might be my blind spot, I've never finished a piece where I realized, uh uh-oh, this screwed me and has to be redone. You know, what usually happens, and and even with, you know, a a novel that you had read when we first met each other, you know, I realize that I have a character that, let's say, isn't likable like i like him and if you stick with him you get to like him but some people don't find him likable so i realized i have to have what's called a save the cat scene you know i have to have some scene where we like him and i have to have it pretty soon or on Mm -hmm. so that didn't necessitate rewriting or restructuring it just means now i have to come up with the scene and I have to stick it in early and i have to make it look like it wasn't stuck in because i screwed up And I think I did a good job of that, I I don't know. So, or I'm writing something now and I realize the premise was supposed to be, the premise is hysterical. Is my finished piece hysterical? I don't know, but that just means I need to have more little bits that are going to be humorous throughout. It doesn't change the structure. So I'm willing in principle to change things that went astray, but I've never felt that I've gone that far astray.
0: Interesting. Well, I guess I'm, I'm just talking about you have some interactions between characters earlier on, which then down the road as you've gone, those interactions don't really make sense or aren't needed, or you might need to change the the people in them or something along those lines. But anyway, you know, it's just I, interesting. I just like-
1: That's why people outline things. And I once tried to outline so I knew exactly where everything was going. Mm -hmm. And the problem for me, and I guess for every other Pantser too, but I never really, till recently, even discussed this kind of stuff with anybody. The problem with outlining is once that the creative stuff goes into the outline, then once I have Mm -hmm. the outline, now it's just drudge work taking this creative, interesting. You know, three sentences and fleshing it out to be a, a seven page scene. And that, to me, is hard work and it's not fun. Whereas I'm doing it at the seat of the, you know, in the, in the, in lifetime, I don't sense it's work. So I'm figuring it out as I go along.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. For me, the whole pantsing aspect, it's like watching a movie that you're in or yeah I mean it's just a fact you know you don't know what's gonna happen you don't know what the characters are gonna do they just do stuff and you put it down I think that's to me that's what pantsing is about
1: you know I also I think there might be um either a modified form of pantsing or in fact some element of pantsing that no one discusses that it's not so free-for-all you know like I say I never start writing a piece till I know the ending and Mm -hmm. once you know the ending then you kind of know what your character is going to do, and then you figure out what characters you need to get to this ending. And so I have a lot more in my head that it's, it's not going to surprise me along the way. Little bits may surprise me and things may develop, but I have a much more structured sense than someone who says that's writing like stream of consciousness. You know, it's hmm, not like well, they had a birthday party. Now, what will happen? It's like who knows. Well, if they had a birthday party, I know that now he has to be thinking about you know how he's aging, or he has to think about you know his childhood. I know what should happen, so I have to figure out how to get there. I always kind of have a sense of the the overall roadmap. You know, it's, it's kind of like maybe this is a bad, good, or bad analogy. Like if I'm going from New York to LA. I know where I'm going. I just don't know whether I'm going to take the northern road, the southern road. I don't know if I'm going to stop. I don't know how many days I'm going to take. But I know where I'm going to go. And I know kind of I want to have fun doing it. So
0: hmm. cool. Interesting. And I
1: have a feeling probably more pants are like that. But they never really admit because it's somewhat subconscious.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm.
1: So I don't know, Kevin, where do you stand on pantsing?
2: Yeah, I'm a pantser. I don't write. I don't really like outlining stuff. I think um, I, mean, I revise a lot more than you do, it sounds. So I think sometimes in a story, I'll get to a point where I just need to, um, like like you said, when I have a clear idea of where things are going, it might be worth it to sit down and and map that out and make sure I'm connecting all the dots. And it can, like you said, just kind of inform what needs to happen like moment to moment in the story. But yeah, I, I don't really... Um, I'll avoid outlining at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, well, well. I
1: avoid editing and rewriting at all costs. But I think after this discussion, I'm going to look back at things and try and force myself to think about serious rewriting and serious editing and where and when it needs it.
0: That's great. Well, I think you should take a look at The Song Is Over because that, to me, that's the one you were speaking to earlier with the character that a lot of people didn't like. And I think it has a lot of potential. So,
1: my problem is, is when I finish something, I like what I write. I always like what I write, and mm-hmm. I'm really in a minority. <laughs> the problem is, is I realize that there's a mass market sensibility, and then there are things that individually we all like. And yes. it's taken me a long time to realize that my sensibilities are not mass market. I don't like a lot of the popular books i mean there are a lot of books i love that other people love so i know i'm not like out on a limb but a lot of things that people think are great i just think like wow i don't see the value in this it's not interesting to me so i'm writing things that are interesting (laughs) to me and suddenly i was like i'm in this small minority and it's like you know if this was my day job and i needed it for success i'd really have to reconsider and in fact I did mm-hmm. once reconsider we we I don't think we talked about this but I wrote I decided to write a mass market thing I'm gonna sell this book no matter what it was a werewolf story and it was right before werewolves really got hot so like it, it was a little too late because Twilight everything came out while I was still working on it, and then people were fed up with it but more importantly I was writing this very very mainstream story And when I finished it, it looked like one of my stories anyway. It like had elements of everything I like in the story. And it took it out of that mass market genre. And I realized like you can only write what you like and you know, you're stuck with it. Maybe, you know, it'll be appreciated down the road. Maybe it won't be, but you've got to accept that you can't pander or many people can't. And I can't pander because I put too much of myself into it in the end that it comes out exactly the way I want it to be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: A curse and a blessing you know?
2: <laughs> Do you think like you've found an audience along the way that likes the same stuff you like or? Uh, a,
1: not too much not I don't know, not too much. you know I think there are people yeah. that like you know there's there yeah I'll, I'll actually there's definitely a small audience, but what happens is that small audience you I guess what I'm saying is I'm not published enough to in- get that audience to be larger. You know what I mean? Until you get a certain amount of mass acceptance, you can't be exposed to a larger audience. You know, I actually self-published a book thinking that that would be a way to do it. And again, my timing is really bad because self-publishing is a great idea till it, you know, exploded. And now there are Mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of self-titled, you know, books that it's hard to get yours noticed by anybody. You know, that's the Mm -hmm. real key. And, you know, again, tip to anyone who wants to do that. If you're big in social media and you're willing to spend a lot of time on social media pushing things, then you can can get success. But if your idea is like, and I have friends who feel this way, it's like, I wrote this, I published it on Kindle, people will find it. It's like, no, they'll never find it. There are tens of thousands of books, you know? But I know musicians that spend so much time on social media, you know, promoting themselves that it's absurd but it works they get gigs because they're doing this round the clock
0: mm-hmm. well that's actually a niche we kind of want to fill here in the near future which is helping people get published and get exposure but we won't be doing all that marketing so we were gonna you know ideally down the road help people get books published but just like everybody else we don't want to spend time on the social media aspect of it all that much and everything we will help a little marketing but um I mean if people want to do that individually we think that's great but at least it'll be it's available like at least if it's on kindle someone can find it so anyway we'll see that's a that's a future that's a future hope of ours right yeah there.
1: well yeah i mean you never know i mean like a lot of podcasts start off small and they get a lot of interest and they get picked up by more and more and more people so who knows
0: that'd be great well we hope that folks that listen today are going to be spreading the word <laughs> Well, we're coming up on uh, 30 minutes. Is there anything you wanted to talk about, Michael, before we... <laughs>
1: Nothing else that I really want to add, except, you know, it's, it's funny how this kind of just wound down at the perfect time. It's like this is kind of the end of the discussion. And it's the end of the time period. It worked out kind of well that way.
0: Yeah, it usually does. All right. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. And I hope that you know, lots of people find your work through Onyx Publications. So thanks again, Michael.
1: So thanks for having me. And, yeah, let's hope this thing really takes off.
0: Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please help us spread the word by telling your friends, giving us a rating on your favorite podcast app, or better yet, shout it from the rooftops through your social media outlet of choice. The Story Discovery podcast is a free narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx magazine, edited by J.W. McAteer and Kevin McMahon. All stories are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com onyxpublications. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new stories to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story for consideration, visit the submissions page on our website. Until next time, keep reading and writing.